0: This is episode two hundred and seventy nine of the AWS podcast, released on November twenty eighth, twenty eighteen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the AWS podcast. Simon Alicia here, good to have you back, and I'm joined by Mr. Jeff Bargata, Jeff. Happy to see you again, Simon. And we are here in front of a live audience, which is the first time we've ever done this. Say hello, audience. Wow, that's a reinvent special. So. What could possibly go wrong in, in doing this? So what we're gonna do is a, a quick update of some of the cool announcements that we made uh, today and yesterday. And then we're going to do some audio, audio, audience participation on the audio. So let's start with some of the uh, interesting updates we've had from a storage perspective. And there was one that kind of snuck in there that I think is kind of interesting with EBS, where uh, EBS has now doubled the performance of provisioned IOPS SSD, so the IO-1 from 32,000 IOPS to 64,000 IOPS, and from 500 meg per second to 1,000 meg per second when you're attached to a Nitro EC2. This
1: one also took me by surprise, and uh, it just kind of snuck in as, oh, this is a pretty cool thing we're doing for our customers. I I love this because the customers can just turn up the dial and get more IOPS, they don't have to replace hardware, no upgrades. Exactly. They're there, if they need that performance, it's available to them.
0: And, And reflecting on sort of the progress we've made for customers, when doubling the performance of EBS does not merit a keynote or anything else these Uh, days.
1: Not only that, the things we're talking about are only Mondays and Tuesdays. We haven't even heard from Andy or Werner yet.
0: Exactly, exactly. So something else that's in preview is S3 batch operations. Um, Anyone in this room uh, dealing with hundreds of thousands or millions of of, uh, S3 objects? Yes. Yes.
1: Um, But millions is small change actually. That's true. We've got customers with billions Billions. of objects in a bucket. That is true. Do we have any billion billion? bucket customers? Yes, Yes. Yes,
0: fantastic. So uh, this will allow you to copy objects between buckets, replace object tags, updates, update access control list, restore objects from Glacier, and invoke Lambda functions at massive, massive scale. So that's in preview at the moment, so keep an eye out for that. Um, but another good one has been uh, automatic cost optimization using S3 intelligent tiering. Yeah,
1: I'm pretty excited for this because talking to the team, the team told me a little bit about how this works behind the scenes. Um, What actually happens is that the access patterns, the the objects that are requested, the interval between requests, a lot of other factors that they didn't share with me, (laughs) all get fed into machine learning models. And they they basically build and train models that are, over time, are going to be actually powerful enough to predict the access patterns to individual objects in each of our buckets. Yeah. From there, they choose the behind the scenes storage layout for how they choose to put the objects on the S3 storage. And because of that, they can now offer, we can now offer this incredibly economical storage model where the objects you're actually access, accessing all the time, those are in the standard storage class. Those that you don't access for a while, they get put off into the infrequent access class and without the customer having to understand yeah. access patterns, the customers get to save some money.
0: And that's pretty cool, because that's always been the challenge. I mean, I've, I've worked in storage for a long time in my career and the tiering of storage is always kind of the holy grail. And to not have to worry about it's pretty cool, but some uh, some just some points about what you need to be aware of. So any objects smaller than 128K will not be moved, because um, they're kind of too small to make it worthwhile, so be aware of that. Uh, object life is not good for anything that lasts uh, less than 30 days Uh, but you can also use query in place so if you're using S3 query you can use that and it won't alter the storage tier as well so some cool things there.
1: Exactly right all all really good points.
0: So uh, Jeff have you ever used secure FTP?
1: I have and the funny thing (laughs) is when I started writing this blog post I was thinking actually decades back to my pre-Amazon past. It and will not die. It will not die <laughs> but it will not die because people actually use it. That's true. And right, there, there's all these really important business processes that have an, an inbound or outbound SFTP step and they're so vital to business that yeah. they say it really works. Please do not we've touch to it, do it. not perturb it in any way we've shape or form. It. K- keep it going yep. and now we've actually got a, a neat way to to run that in AWS, and I'm pretty psyched about this because the idea that we can have objects come in, they get dropped into an S3 bucket, and then run a Lambda function, you you could validate, make sure you got the whole file, run some validation rules, ingest the data right right away, process it, report on it, all kinds of things that you probably had some
0: really messy scripts and glue and stuff. I can think about a lot of really old clunky scripting that's gonna go from here. Anyone in the room using SFTP?
1: So, so this is a really neat bridge from the, the distant past yep. into the future. So, yep. so from things that actually existed before AWS, now you can, you can serverlessly them. process your ancient FTP transist, uh, d- data.
0: There's probably data a ports. challenge there to see who can get the oldest living system, legacy system oh. communicating via SFTP into Lambda. I'm sure we can get yeah. a Fortran system good, good out challenge. there somewhere Great or, challenge. or something. <laughs> So it's AWS Transfer for SFTP is what it's called. It's available in North Virginia, Ohio, Oregon, North California, Canada Central, uh, Ireland, Paris, Frankfurt, London, Tokyo, Singapore, Sydney, and Seoul regions. So what if we wanna move data really, 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 really fast? I've
1: got just a solution for you. Really?
0: What would that be called?
1: Let's call it AWS data Sync.
0: Sounds like a deal. <laughs> <laughs> so this is automated and accelerated data transfer where if you wanna fill a 10 gig pipe, we can do it with one agent.
1: That's right. And I think what people didn't fully grasp about this, some of the things I was reading about online, people said, oh, that, that's kind of an easy, obvious thing to do. But the reality is when you have a, a massive amount of bandwidth, when you're going any distance, you yeah. have to actually account for the fact that those packets are traveling along the wire at a at a, a, a foot per nanosecond, basically, yeah. if I remember. Um <laughs> It's traveling along, and just for the packet to get the other end, to get the acknowledgement back, is a lot of time if you're going halfway around the Earth, and yes. so you need a protocol that that is going to keep all uh, keep the entire wire full, if you will, and then if something goes wrong, that you don't have to do massive amounts of retries that are all each waiting for that massive amount of, of exactly. time as things go back and forth. So data sync is designed to make really good use of, of all the available bandwidth. Every time you deploy an agent it will let you do, I think Ten gigabits. Ten gig, of, yeah. It'll um, fill a
0: ten gig network. Ten
1: gig, link. and you can actually each of the agents you configure them to reach out and pull stuff from your NFS server. Yep. If your NFS server can sustain more than ten gigabits, yeah. Then good luck with that. Run a couple of
0: agents. This is yeah. a this is a great example of uh, getting rid of undifferentiated hef- heavy lifting. Hey. So, hey. uh, <laughs> welcome to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is the ADOS podcast drinking game that's happening. <laughs> And and the good thing is, you know, it really does help you drive uh, big data loads that you're trying to do. It keeps uh, different uh, metadata as well, so it'll store some of the POSIX data on S3 and back again as well, so if you're copying things across. If you're trying to figure out whether to use AWS DataSync or S3 Transfer Acceleration, the guidance is, is that if you're already using something that's integrated with the S3 API, then you're going to use Transfer Acceleration if they're using an existing thing, so network attached storage, Jeff, you mentioned, that's a good thing to use, or something that's sort of legacy and you can't change, that's the place that you'd use it Yeah, now
1: the important part of that sync, the sync part of that name, The first time you do a transfer, it transfers all the files and all the metadata. Yeah. The second time you invoke the sync, it's going to check and it's going to see, and it's only going to transmit changes to the metadata or to the files themselves. Yep. I don't know if it always does whole files or parts of files, and I'm sure someone's going to ask me that. I don't know. I don't know. At this point, (laughs) but I I did replicate this myself at home, as I do with every possible thing that I write about. And the first transfer transferred everything, and the second one checked everything and said no updates and... That's cool. did, did no additional data transfer. The nice it. thing
0: is the data is all encrypted. Uh, it comes as a virtual machine as well to install. It can go the other way as well, so you can go from AWS back to on-premises as well if that's, that's what you right. want to do. Uh, the nice thing is it just gets rid of a whole lot of plumbing you had to put together. I remember years ago putting together Tsunami, FD, uh, tsunami UDP agents and stuff like that to try and drive the wire. It's hard, so kudos to the team. Like we were talking
1: about earlier, everything seems really easy and (laughs) you actually have to connect it up together yourself and make it work and make it robust in production.
0: Exactly. Another coming soon announcement related to EFS, this is our last storage update for today, is there'll be a new lifecycle management option for EFS which is uh, the ability to have an infrequent access storage class. So you can basically uh, move anything that hasn't been accessed in the last 30 days. And it's going to be 85% less. 85% less expensive. Who likes spending 85% less? Yeah! We can drink to that as well. Price yeah. <laughs> drops and undifferentiated heavy lifting. <laughs> so let's move to compute. And there was something pretty cool announced yesterday. This was uh, a new EC2 instance type. They seem to be springing up everywhere. This is the EC2A1 instance. And Jeff, uh, you got to play with this, I think. Well. I
1: actually did. And um, again, I always like hands on, and I do that to the absolute best of my my abilities and whatever facilities are available to me. So I, I did launch an A1 instance. Cool things about the A1, it's built on the AWS Graviton processor, which is built on ARM cores. Yep. It takes advantage of all the incredible engineering we've done over the last couple of years to build the AWS Nitro system. So it it has the... Let's see, so what, with Nitro, we've got the hardware control of security. Yep. We've got EBS encryption. We've got NVMe access. We've got the... Um, the network access in there is also, I believe, part of Nitro.
0: Yes. And so
1: all those are are part of the A1 instances. Uh, When we kind of polished off the last couple steps of Nitro, I I remember writing something to the fact that said, now with all of this in place, we can do an even better job of listening to customers and innovating on instance types. And the the A1s are one of the the fruits of all that hard work we've put in over the years on on Nitro.
0: And I think they really also recognize the changing usage pattern where uh, customers are deploying smaller, componentized applications, microservices, containers, etc., and this really suits that workload type. And what you're seeing is basically a 45% cost reduction <laughs> uh, compared to other Amazon EC2 general-purpose instances. So, pretty exciting in terms of that.
1: That's right. I, I launched it, and all the it, it was it was it just Linux through and yep. through, and there it was. Yep. And...
0: So it supports Amazon uh, Linux 2, Red Hat and Ubuntu as well as container services including Just
1: for fun, when I was launching that, I did did a yum install and I installed every package in the Amazon (laughs) Linux 2 repository. Because why wouldn't you? Why not? Just to make sure and they all work together. How long did it take? Don't even remember. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, I'm heavily multitasked when I'm Well, I can posts. imagine when
0: you're blogging pre reinvent, time is a virtual concept. It actually, so, well,
1: yeah. except for the last two weeks when there's never
0: enough. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, it's, speaking of the next uh, type of instances we're going to talk about, one of the things that's been very apparent to me is watching how customer demand drives the roadmap. And as customers have been moving to AWS, they really often say, Hey, I've moved this, this, and this, or I'm building this new, but I've got this system I really love to run, but you don't have x right and you know solving for x has kind of been what we do for Mm -hmm. our customers and one of the x's has been but i need a hundred gig networking for my hpc workload very very true hello ec2 c5ns and p3dn instances
1: now one thing i would love to point out here Mm. for every one of our customers both here in the room and listening we need to hear from you yes if if you have uh, a situation that we're not addressing Hunt us down, email us, <laughs> tweet, tweet at us, write yep. a blog post that says, Dear AWS, please add the following. I, I do my absolute best to find the team owners and mm. get any of that feedback to them yep. within a matter of minutes, yep. regardless of the time of day or the day of the week. And any kind of feedback, I pass along to general managers right away and say, here's a customer, Act, act on it. Figure out what you need to do next.
0: And the, the good thing is, is, the service teams love to get that feedback. Oh, they love talking they totally to customers. Do. It's like their favorite thing to do. And, and
1: the, to me, the coolest thing, they don't say, "Is this a quote important customer?" Yes, yeah. customer uh, is the, the the finest level e- of gradation ex- that they care about.
0: Spot on. Spot on. You could be a, a two person startup or a thousand $200, dollar, uh, 200,000 person corporation.
1: Well, we have an entire building in Seattle called Low Flying Hawk that we named after a customer that gave us lots of awesome feedback. Yeah. It turned out they were a $10 a month spend customer. But they were a great <laughs> customer. <laughs>
0: customer's a customer, we love our customers. It's part of being customer obsessed, it's not customer obsessed for customers of a certain size. So, related to this is a preview of the Elastic Fabric Adapter. And this is really useful for HPC workloads, particularly things that are using MPI or message passing interface. So this is kind of a drop in capability to allow you to have bisectional bandwidth, isn't
1: it? It sure is, and so I've actually never done any programming with MPI, but apparently what you do is whatever piece of equipment you're on, you get a, a library that's yep. specific to the hardware. Yep. You relink your, your code against that library, and then apparently it just talks directly to the hardware without going through the kernel. And so you avoid some data copies and some yeah. some context switch overhead. And it's,
0: it's a really, it's one of those, you know has, you find common architectural patterns in different industries. This is one for HPC, it's just, it's the thing. And people understand it and they like it. So this is available on uh, EC2P3DN and C5N, and will also be enabled on additional EC2 additional instances. Ones to come. And, in and additional,
1: if customers have specific requests, let us know and we'll be happy to pass those along to the team.
0: Exactly, exactly. So it's interesting. Often people ask, how does uh, the stuff behind the scenes work? Uh, one of the, the common ones is Lambda. You know, how do you guys run Lambda? Clearly, there's a bin packing problem you've got to deal with. Let's talk about startup times, etc. This can't be easy. And the not to mention
1: is, the fact that we need high isolation between exactly, Lambda Exactly, secure,
0: super secure, etc. cetera. Uh, it's not easy, but the great news is we've open sourced the... Uh, virtualization technology that we use, which is called Firecracker, and Firecracker is a really cool technology built upon KVM, and basically it, la- it allows you to run those micro VMs in non-virtualized environments. So what this means, you get super fast startup, but you get really robust security. And again, this is one you got super hands-on. Uh, of course.
1: I actually launched an i3.metal instance, the first one I did. And I, I launched that and I saw it was $4 an hour. And <laughs> the, the funny thing at Amazon, we always worry about frugality. Yeah. And yeah. I even though I don't personally get billed for that $4 per hour, I still thought, oh, You're that's kind of my for. wallet exactly. here that's, yeah. Uh, yeah. that's being billed the $4 an hour. So I, I launched it and had a great time using Firecracker. I, I launched some micro VMs and... I, they did launch in the in the the guaranteed 125 not guaranteed no, but no. claimed 125 milliseconds. milliseconds super cool and super easy to use yeah. this is kind of neat because it is it's a base technology we've done a huge amount of work to get to where we are yeah but that's actually a starting point that's not a finished point we it is open source we invite people from all yes. over the world to take a look decide where they would like to take it and yep. then build it so to the more next level.
0: And, and the startup time of those micro VMs is really important because I know that's something that people get really wound up about when it comes to um, to uh, Lambda, etc. which is always interesting to me because I remember when, I'm going to do the old manuals <laughs> oh, at <yeah>. cloud time. <laughs> I, I can outdo
1: that. Uh, you first. can definitely outdo <laughs> that.
0: But I remember when I used to visit with customers and they complained to me that their EC2 instance took more than two minutes to start. At which point I had to have the, let me tell you about waiting six months for a server mm. conversation. <laughs> um, and, right. and then containers came along and I said, isn't the second fast enough for you? And apparently the answer is no. No, it's not fast <laughs> enough. I want my microseconds and I want them now.
1: All right, let's do a quick <laughs> trivia question. Okay. What was the name of the, the UI before we had the AWS Management Console?
0: Oh, wow. I honestly couldn't tell you. What was the name?
1: Should we ask the audience?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. What was the name of the UI before we had the AWS Management Console? Although all the cool kids amongst us never used the console. We? <laughs> <laughs> and we used it before we had the rewritten one, ah, too. Okay. Remember the one you had to install each individual one? So what was the answer, Jeff?
1: It, it was called ElasticFox. It was ah, a
0: yes.
1: huge bundle of JavaScript it that ran incredibly too. well in Firefox. Yeah,
0: that's right. And uh, it is no more.
1: <laughs> I believe that's it's actually been forked. There's still a version
0: so uh, back to Firecracker, so it was interesting to me, the team's keen to really keep iterating on that. I think they did a test launch today of 4,000 containers simultaneously and at the same time. And uh, I think they hit, the, the longest one was 195 milliseconds, and they're not happy about mm. it, So, which is good. Uh, super secure, as you mentioned, that isolation model's really important. There's a whole lot of details in the blog post about that. The thing that jumped out to me is it's written in Rust. So for all the hipsters amongst us, Rust people, Rust. Why? <laughs> Thread safety, can't seg fault, all that security. Want, could, exactly, very very cool. Let's talk networking. All right. Who's deploying their applications globally? Anyone in this uh, particular room? A few. Who would like some form of oh, I don't know, global load balancing, perhaps? Yeah. Would we consider that undifferentiated heavy lifting? I, I believe yes, I believe. we would. There we <laughs> go. So the AWS Global Accelerator is now available, and this allows you to. Uh, route your customers to different Amazon and application endpoints in different regions without having to configure anything. Basically, you get a set of static Anycast IP addresses, so they do not change. But your customers can route based on different policies across AWS's big, highly available, congestion-free, global network, backbone, and edge locations. So you on-ramp onto the AWS network really, really fast, and you get to get access to those endpoints. This is pretty cool. I think so. The thing that I liked, it was uh, launched uh, all around the world really, really early, so uh, it's something a lot of our customers can get access to. Another one that's been really interesting watching over time is uh, people building more and more complex VPC architectures. And we've had VPC peering for a while, I think we announced that a couple of years ago now. Um, But a lot of customers have asked for a more effective kind of hub and spoke type architecture. And so now we have the AWS Transit Gateway, which is a great way to get rid of the undifferentiated heavy lifting. Of networking. So maybe let's talk a little about that one, Jeff. Okay. what
1: do you think? So I'm definitely not a network expert. There's a lot of other things I'm also not an expert <laughs> in, but um, based on talking with the team a lot, it's really clear that as our customers start to use multiple VPCs, sometimes even spanning accounts with VPCs, that getting them all connected together and getting the, everything configured just right is a lot of work for them. Yeah. And they, yeah. They said, make this a little bit simpler for us, and the the transit gateway is clearly a lot simpler to to do. It's actually, to me, kind of neat, because by putting this out, we're making life simpler for our customers. They're going to use a little bit less of certain parts of AWS, and we're totally, totally happy about that. We
0: like that, exactly. At launch, you can connect up to 5,000 VPCs to each, each gateway, and each attachment can handle up to 50 gig per second of bursty traffic. Uh, Now, Direct Connect is planned for 2019. There's so many features the team's going to be iterating on that, which is pretty cool. Now,
1: there's actually a really other cool feature buried inside of Transit Gateway called the Resource Access Manager. Mm -hmm. So what I like to think about this, what this does, it really separates ownership and access. So it used to be that ownership and access were effectively a single concept, that every account owned its resources and only had access to those resources. The Resource Access Manager really separates those two.
0: It's a kind of a logical construct to help manage that.
1: It is. And so if if you own some resources and you say others within my organization or in other AWS accounts have to have access to these in a controlled way. You create a resource share, you give it a name, and then the the share is effectively like a bag. So you can put several different kinds of resource types in there. I think we've got... um, Actually, I can't list them all because we haven't <laughs> launched a bunch. all those things yet. <laughs> there's there, a there, bunch. There's yeah. things there to be announced <laughs> that you can put in the resource share. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I like how you did that. Yes. Uh, Nothing to uh, see here. Yes. Yeah. Move along. Yes. So um, there are.
1: You, you create the share. Yeah. You then can list the organizations, organization units or accounts that you'd like to share it with. You can still use IAM to first control what can be shared. Yeah. And then you can also control the level of access those those other accounts have once they get the individual resource. Yeah. At the point when you create the share, an invitation shows up in the console of the other accounts. They see the invitation. They say, yep, I would like to have access to those resources. They take it and then any effectively any of the describe API calls for any of their shareable resource types will now also return the shared resources nice, there's nice. there's a new field that is returned it's the owner account id so you can actually determine you can see
0: which are mine is, which are is, is it mine is it.
1: something that was shared with me
0: that's very cool very cool also another question i know a lot of people might have about the adibus transit gateway does it support ipv6 yes yes it does
1: Yay!
0: <laughs> huzzah so let's move on to a, a couple of last minute cool things that aren't even on our run hmm. sheet so we're going from complete memory um, so firstly, let's talk about, uh, satellites, we should. because we've already given people robots this week <laughs> and now we're giving satellites. Ground station. Talk to us about
1: Ground it. station. So I actually saw a comment somewhere that said we jumped the shark by launching this. I totally disagree no. with that. Is, is we that had, an Australian I, phrase? Do you have the Yeah, we the shark? have jumped okay, the shark. Good.
0: But I, I was actually commenting to my team, okay. we've had robots, we've had satellites, I want sharks with laser beams. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> coming soon to our region there, yeah. Exactly. So tell us about this service.
1: Okay, so the idea with Ground Station is that it's becoming easier and easier over time to build increasingly small satellites that do special things, either for a long time or a short term. You could do it even as a high school project or a college project or a small group. You can get these satellites put together. You can get get space to get them launched. You can get them into low Earth orbit relatively inexpensively compared to a decade ago. Once you've got them up there, they're doing some kind of measuring, observation. The next challenge is how do we actually get that get data back. back to the ground? And it's
0: usually a lot of data, isn't
1: it? It, it apparently it is. It's some <laughs> kind of observation, some kind of
0: yeah, yeah, some high strain, photography, yeah.
1: Um, imagery, yeah, some kind of measurement. Apparently, in the past, you had to beg, borrow, steal, or build a ground station of your own, which the team says maybe a hundred thousand dollars piece to do this, which wow. is If you're doing something big and commercial expensive, maybe you can afford that. If it's it's a a, a short-term project, if it's literally an on-demand, maybe you only need to measure for a couple weeks, then you need a a more on-demand access to the receiving capabilities. So ground station is this ability to... First, you... And it's not as self-serve as you can imagine. You actually have to contact us and give us what's called the the NORAD ID of your satellite. So (laughs) we need to actually know what satellite to talk to. Exactly. We do some level of validation, make sure you actually have access to that satellite. Then you go to the console and you create a reservation for your satellite that says, and it'll tell you based on which region you'd like to actually receive data into. It will say, okay, these are the the transits that's going to make, and this is the the amount of time that your satellite will actually be visible to that ground station. You make a reservation, and then we give you a special EC2 AMI that's pre-configured to actually take the incoming analog data stream. So coming off of the ground station antenna, it is just the analog signal from, this is what they tell me. I'm not an authority on any of this. (laughs) Um, you get the analog signal from the antenna, you then actually have to do analog to digital conversion. It's a, a format For a that's modem. called- Right, it <laughs> actually is a modem. Yeah. It's a software modem. It's yep. a format that's called VITA-49. I don't know anything at all. It's way better than, than VITA-48. That's, that's right what here, going, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so you, you take that, It you stream that into a running EC2 instance, and then in, you might store it off in S3, you could dump it into a Kinesis fire hose, yep. and you've got that from the satellite to the ground into EC2. Do your processing and, you go, yeah. and all integrated and effectively on-demand pricing for that. Are
0: you trying to tell me, Jeff, that we're getting rid of the undifferentiated heavy lifting of satellite I sure communication? I'm sure. Am. <laughs> hey! Have we had too many? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> there are a lot of Australians in this audience, so I'm dis- I'm disappointed. Uh, well,
1: although the the, heavy, the lifting part is really getting the satellite into orbit. That's true. That is it, the so.
0: heavy lifting. All right. <laughs> lucky luck. La- lucky last one. This only came in sort of uh, pretty recently. Oh, did we uh, launch something afternoon? this afternoon? Uh, DynamoDB transactions. Ah. Yeah, yeah, So that's been probably one of the number one asks. So now you can uh, transactionify uh, your DynamoDB. There's some nuances of how it works. There's different kinds of reads, two options for writes as well. There is a fantastic blog post about this. I'm going to link to that in the show notes. Um, so I won't get too much into the details. But this is a great example of iterating a product because DynamoDB just keeps getting better and it keeps getting cheaper. And more performance, more security, we've got encryption arrest automatically now as well. Now I've got transactions. It's pretty exciting for our customers. Another
1: thing that didn't even actually make the cut for your list was the DynamoDB on demand. Which now means you no longer need to pre-configure the amount of read and write capacity. That is true. you can enable it on demand and it is effectively, it's going to scale, and scale up and scale down. We're just ruining
0: all these certification questions, aren't we audience? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're updating them. Alrighty, let's go to the audience let's do it. for some Q&A. So uh, Devin's going to run around with this microphone and see if anyone's got a question. So I'll, I'll, I'll answer the first question that I know people ask me beforehand is the setup of the podcast. So the podcast is as scrappy as I can make it. In fact, this is the original microphone that I used to record the podcast. Everyone's looking at a really little uh, a Ooh. snowflake. Ooh. And then the first month of downloads, there were 63 downloads. Yes. <laughs> so through the generations, we've moved through to having a, a Blue Yeti. Uh, these days I use a Rode microphone, good Australian company, on, a, on an arm. But I literally sit in a office room, in the office, record on my laptop on Audacity do a bit of post-processing bingo bango that's the podcast out to the world we like it no
1: but you S3 and CloudFront too right of
0: course yeah S3 S3 for hosting and CloudFront for distribution as well so uh, questions from the audience who wants to ask a question guys what's your favourite announcement so far favourite announcement so far I'm going to say firecracker for me what was yours Jeff
1: you know, I actually try not to play favorites because every time I pick one, every other service team in the entire company comes to me <laughs> and says well, they, they're, they're never um, upset, but they give it to me. and They say, "We sure hope ours is the favorite the next time around." <laughs> so, um, in order to just be fair to everybody, oh. the, it's whatever one I am blogging about at that particular that moment. That was such in time.
0: a dead answer. I know.
1: <laughs> tell them to release earlier next time.
0: Oh, see, I, I tell them to release globally. <laughs> <laughs> if they want my hey! love. Hey! That's cool.
1: <laughs> What's your favorite announcement to come?
0: Oh. My favorite announcement to come is, is, is. <laughs> is that one. Yeah. <laughs> There's been a couple of recent trends where things like Private Link, Resource Access Manager, you're, you're starting to expose some of the underlying plumbing of how you do stuff, which is kind of interesting. It'll be interesting to hear your thoughts on that. So the reason why we talk about the plumbing is only really where it has an effect on customers and when it makes customers' life easier. So there's a lot of undifferentiated heavy lifting that we do behind the scenes and, and you know the, the implementation details are not relevant to customers. So we don't want you to have to waste your time worrying about it. Where we do expose things like Nitro, etc., is when the technology makes a difference to how you operate. So, for example, if you say, well, how is it that you can turn on encryption and it doesn't have a massive performance overhead? We've kind of got to tell you about Nitro. It's got to be in the certification documents, etc., so it comes out.
1: What, one interesting thing to add is that part of our development process is that the first document written for a new service is called the PRFAQ, yep. the press release and the FAQ. Press release, pretty much everybody knows what that's all about. There's a public part of the FAQ that we actually take and publish when we launch the service. A piece of the internal FAQ, this really interesting question, it's called, are we walking through any one-way doors? Yeah. And the the idea is we never want to effectively back ourselves into a corner. And a lot of times the the challenge is we want to share a lot of really cool details with our customers that are not just interesting from a so that the technical folks can appreciate it but uh, once you know about it you can engineer based on that yeah. but a one way door can say we're now telling, telling you something because we're really proud of it and we think it's awesome but then later we have to retract we it we can't change it so yeah. we're, we're very thoughtful and mm-hmm. very deliberate when mm-hmm. we, and we're, we're okay walking through a one way door yeah. we just want to know that we're actually going through that door when we do exactly. it so when we
0: decide to share something it's we've, we've already answered that question <laughs> for ourselves absolutely another question
1: any guesses on how many selfies you took the first few days?
0: How many selfies? Jeff, as a man with purple hair, yes. how many selfies have you had? Um,
1: I'm guessing we're at about 50 so far. Okay, not But too I've spent most of my time in, uh, under, underneath the conference and behind the conference yeah. and behind the scenes. Yeah. In the next couple days, hopefully I'll have a bit more time to be out and about.
0: Walking the floor. I like it.
1: Uh, so Nitro is here. Um, new instance families are coming faster than ever. Do you have any guidance that you can give us to tell our customers about how we should be approaching reservations?
0: Wow, how to be approaching (laughs) reservations. That's a very, very good question. So obviously you can do a lot of reservation trading these days as well. I would go back and say, before making reservations, the biggest thing I see customers not doing is letting their application run for a little while and getting a really good feel for what the profile looks like. We have got really bad habits of overestimating because in the past you only got one chance to estimate. It's much better to get a good feel for what's going on and then adjust down and then do the reservation. And now that you can also shift between families, etc., you're good to go. Of course, you can also then just move to serverless and you never have to worry about that either. Cool. We got one more question.
1: With all these announcements coming out so quickly, how do you guys work together to get this together and make it so easy? Make podcasting look easy. <laughs>
0: Uh, I could say we're really, really talented, but that wouldn't be the case. We
1: are great at we are great at improving, and I, I think we be because of the nature of what we have to do here, we have to become incredibly quick studies. And yep. sometimes we are reading the top tagline of this cool new announcement, and we are scanning through the rest of it, desperately trying to figure out what it is in a matter yep. of milliseconds, so we can it's sound true. like we know what was going on. It's true.
0: <laughs> also, you know, Andy Jesse has a saying: "There's no compression algorithm for experience." Um, between uh, Jeff and myself we're probably rapidly approaching uh, more than 70 years of combined experience probably closer to 100 dare I say yes I'm older than I look <laughs> 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 and, and so you know, we are genuinely excited about technology we love technology we love getting our hands dirty you know, Jeff when he blogs he's used the services You know, when I'm talking about stuff I've worked with customers deploying these services that helps a lot in doing it um, it is tough so we're really excited to make it easier for all of you so thanks everyone for joining us today and thanks Jeff for coming on the podcast
1: It's been as fun as always
0: And until next time keep on building. <laughs>